Before I say a prayer, though, I'm going to read uh, just one um, verse from Scripture. This is from the letter of James, uh, chapter 1, the very end, verse 27. Uh, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to discuss our place as the church in this postmodern uh, world uh, today, especially meditate on what it means to be a, a counterculture in, uh, in our Western world, Lord, uh, God, our thoughts and our discussion um, as we seek to have a true religion in a world uh, without a story of what religion could and might be, for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, so yeah, come on in, sit down. Um, so so, I mean, you know, it's fascinating with with James. You want to know what religion is? You know, if people think immediately of religion, they're going to think often of a certain, you know, maybe ritual or um, uh, doctrine, dogma, uh, piety, uh, things like that. And the first thing he says is, uh, "Well, go visit the orphans and widows." Which at the time would have been a really countercultural thing because what, if you guys want to come on in, I'll stand over here. So across the room. You know, widows and orphans are they're they're wasteful. You know what I mean? I mean, in terms of the pragmatic mind, they just take up space. So why visit them? You know, I mean, just um, uh, let's uh, discard. And I, often, um, not only was that an issue in the Greco-Roman world, but it's it's a, an issue for us sort of objectification of people, really. Um, and so today, um, we're going to think about that topic as Christians here in the postmodern world that often, uh, in shades of gray, looks a lot like the Greco-Roman world. And so we can learn from the earliest church and how they navigated uh, their society and the cultures that they, um, that they lived amongst. And often, the things that were being taught and espoused and valued um, were in diametric opposition to Christian values. And so it's difficult to live in, in such a society. Um, and uh, often, uh, even though standing up for something would lead to persecution, ironically, or should I say paradoxically, it also often attracted people to the, to the Christian community because deep down, um, the human soul is longing for God and, um, and, and, and probably sees that there's something going on here that's, that's right. Um, and uh, so today we're talking about being a counterculture, a countercultural a servant community is what we've tit- titled this talk, or another way to say it is a counterculture uh, for the common good. Uh, it's funny to think about in a sort of uh, uh, broadly evangelical, sort of uh, conservative Christian environment to think that we could be a counterculture. Usually when you think of counterculture, you think of 1960s sort of hippies or something like that. Um, that, that's not exactly what we're talking about, but we were talking about uh, being a, a, a counterculture in a different way. And Brandon's going to give us um, some thoughts on that and background. Uh, and I'll say a couple more things, and then we'll have open discussion. Well, Matt, jump in yeah, um, sure. I'm for clarification whenever. Um, so again, like Matt said, today we want to talk about and think together about um, the church being an alternative society a counterculture, an alternative society seeking the common good. So we're a servant community, an alternative community, a 
a counterculture. Now, remember this whole class, this five or six week class, however long it is, it's basically an admission. Uh, it's, it's a dealing with reality, right? Because we're, um, we're dealing with the reality of where we are in our current situation in society. Um, that we're no longer in Christendom, uh, where we can simply assume that everyone goes to church and believes like we do. We, can't, we can no longer assume that the general shape of the culture out there is shaped by the Christian story. We Christians are used to that. We, we still think America is generally shaped by the Christian story, that they have the basic sort of lingo, the basic framework, but we can just no longer assume that as Christians. That's kind of the reality that we're facing up to, that we live in a post-Christian or a post-modern society. Now, for us to call ourselves post-Christian, means that we're basically at the end of a long divorce. So the whole modern period, say from the 1600s, 1700s to now, we've basically been going through a divorce. Christianity and Western culture were at one point, they tried to marry each other. Um, that's, you know, the high point is medieval Christianity, right? Um, medieval Europe. But we're basically at the end of a long divorce where we can no longer assume that Christianity is married to the culture. Um, and so maybe I think this is good news for us because maybe we as the church can sort of live into that and press into that and really come into our own now. Um, so, so if we're acknowledging that the general culture out there is no longer shaped by the Christian story, then we need to sort of come to terms with what is our basic cultural narrative? Well, at least in part, our basic cultural narrative is individualism, it is self-reliance, and maybe um, admitting to all this means that we in the church have been shaped by that just as much. And maybe this isn't uh, necessarily a Christian value. Um, so. Now, in this postmodern context that we're in, it's helpful for me to look to sociologists to help to, to come to terms with where we are and, and the cultural narratives that we tell ourselves. So Robert Bella, who recently died, but was a uh, sociologist, I believe at uh, UCLA or um, maybe at Stanford, one of the universities in California. He said in the postmodern period, we don't really have communities. We have what he calls lifestyle enclaves lifestyle enclaves whereas a community he says this is a quote whereas a community attempts to be an inclusive whole celebrating the interdependence of public and private life and of the and of the different callings of all lifestyle is fundamentally segmental and celebrates the narcissism of similarity it usually explicitly involves a contrast with others who do not share one's own lifestyle. So just think about that. We, we live in a world where we are told to sort of find ourselves, and in doing that, the communities we seek out, I mean, I, I see this a lot with people my age, even myself, right? I'm seeking out people like me to affirm me in my own individual pursuit of myself. Another sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, he, uh, he calls it the network, right? If you think about Instagram, um, 
Well, my Instagram followers are basically people who affirm me in my own trying to find myself, right? I can, I can shut people out who aren't exactly like me, right? So this is the, this is the world we're in. We, we're in a world that tells us, I mean, on the street, what, what do we say to each other? You do you, right? Find yourself, live your story. That's the world we're in. And so that means the communities that we're seeking are actually lifestyle enclaves to support me and what I, what I look like. Now, if we're honest, the church has this just as much. Um, I really think uh, the church in America is um, in the state it's in because we're basically like consumer brands, right? So you have the Episcopal Church as, say, Nike, um, the Baptist Church might be Adidas, uh, Reebok might be Presbyterianism, right? And I go shop for whatever I'm looking for. I'm shopping for church because I'm living in a consumer society here to find my own story that supports me and my quest for life. Does that, does that make sense, right? We're, we're seeking out communities that look like me, that fit my consumer personal preferences and tastes. So it's helpful to think like this because it um, shows us the values that we as Christians have, but it's also helpful to think about our society, um, at, we as the church, as we organize to get the gospel spoken out in the world. Um, it is the whole task of the church to speak the gospel in our worship, in our evangelism, in our work life, um, from beginning to end, the church is the community that gathers around the gospel. So, um, having said that, this is the society we're in. So, so we're to be an alternative society. We're to be a counterculture, right? Um, so who is the church? Again, to repeat myself, the church is the particular community of people that gathers around the gospel. There's a particular piece of news that the God of Israel has raised Jesus from the dead, and we are the group of people, the community of people that gather around that news. That is what defines us. Now, we in the Bible Belt in 21st century America have inherited this whole cultural Christianity, and it might be easy for us to define church and Christianity in terms of, say, a bishop, a pastor, um, the way a building looks like, did you ever, um, I remember growing up playing on the playground in my school and seeing these bugs. Did you, did you ever see these bugs that were left on a tree? The, the exoskeleton that was left on a tree, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I think that's a really good imagery for the church in, in the West because the gospel has come into, it's the piece of news that has come into our Western society. It has interacted with our Western society and it has given birth to a whole cultural uh a whole culture of churches and Christianity, right? And so it's kind of like the bug, right? There was life there, and it's given birth to an institutional system, but in some contexts, the gospel has gone away, and all that you have left is the exoskeleton of the bug, right? We have, we have the institutional church, but we no longer have the stuff inside of it, right, that gives it life. So... So to the extent that um, we leave behind the gospel, we've really, we've really begun to not be faithful to ourselves as the church, to who we are, because we're the community that gathers around the gospel. 
So that means, by the way, let me just put it like this. That means that the Episcopalian um, professor I know, the professor of religion, of Christianity, who denies, um, who denies the resurrection, uh, this is a real person who denies the resurrection, but likes churchy things, he is a priori outside of Christianity, right? Because you might be in love with the institution of the church, um, but if we don't get the gospel, if we deny the resurrection, which is the central claim of the faith, um, well, I, that's outside of all bounds of orthodoxy of the faith, right? Um, it's like Dr. Bray. You all, you all know Dr. Bray. Dr. Bray, my professor at Beeson, says, when you go into a church, you can preach heresy all you want, but don't you dare change the color of the carpet, right? <laughs> and there's truth to that, because we love our institutional church and Christianity. So we're admitting, again, to repeat, we're admitting that we're in a postmodern society where the, sh where the shape of the culture out there is no longer generally shaped by the Christian story. So if you look at, say, um, if you look at, say, the early church, the early church 2,000 years ago was a marginal group of people. They the whole Western intellectual tradition, say Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, Calvin, Luther, whoever else, all these people that we've inherited, they were not there. The Christian story, the Christian group of people, um, that was a marginal. That was a marginal group. They were persecuted for their faith. Um, uh, they were looked at as strange, uh, and yet they grew, right? Um, if you look at the early church, and I brought this book, if you're if you're interested in this, if you're interested in, say, history, there's a recent book that came out in the fall called, um, it's by Larry Potato, Destroyer of the Gods, uh, and it, it takes a look at the uniqueness of Christianity in the Roman world, so that's a really good book if you're looking for a summer history read, Destroyer of the Gods, which is where I'm getting a lot of this information. Um, if you look at the early church, they did not assimilate to the culture, nor did they withdraw from the culture. Um, he says, well, this is not Larry Hurtado, this is a different person. Um, the Christian assembly was not one of a palette of social commitments of an urban Roman. It was the center of the Christian's lives. It was not one aspect of a varied religious life. It was their religious life. The Christians were creating an alternative community that had non-conformist approaches to common social problems and that imparted to its participants a powerful sense of individual and group identity. Right? So, so Alan Kreider, a different scholar of the early church, says um, the early Christian church, that was their society. That was where they found their identity. They were creating a whole new way of being. And, um, and, and what you see is they didn't assimilate totally to the culture, nor did they totally withdraw. They remained within it as a faithful group of exiles, trying to change the culture by being an alternative society, right? And if you go on to look, if you read Larry Hurtado or Alan Kreider, um, uh, they, Larry Hurtado says they tried a new novel social project. Um, if you think of uh, 
Well, Larry Hurtado talks about infant exposure. There was something in the Roman world where people had children, and they this was a common practice, by the way, that might horrify us because we've inherited Christianity. Um, but common in the Roman Empire was infant exposure where people would have children, and they would leave them out on the streets to either die or to be adopted um, into slavery. So the, the Christians were as an example of being a counterculture that seeks the common good, the Christians saw that each and every human life has value because they're made in the image of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so they would take them on and um, they would adopt them and, and care for them and treat them as humans, right? Um, and one, one other example that I want to now turn to Matt, uh, since I've been talking too long. Sure. Um, yeah. Is is an alternative sexual ethic? Yeah. Um, so we handed out, uh, or there were up there. It might not be enough copies for everyone, but there's a newsletter that Tim Keller wrote for his church recently. Remember that we're getting uh, the, the framework for the six parts of this series from from Keller, uh, and it's a church called uh, a book called Center Church. I don't expect all of you to read it. It's like 400 pages long. But this newsletter does a good job of sort of summarizing some of the things that we're talking about here to give you some of that. Um, and uh, one of the things, one of the points he makes in this particular newsletter uh, is this. It's on the, um, if you have it, it's at the top of the third page. Like the early church, remember what Brandon's saying about the early church, uh, we should be committed to the sanctity of life. Uh, he talked about the orphans being left on the fields and the streets and uh, to being a sexual counterculture. The church today uh, must not merely maintain the traditional sex ethic among its own people, but it must learn to critique the false cultural narratives underlying our society's practice and view of sex. Um, he leaves it kind of vague there. I'm going to add some meat to the bones here. This is a real awkward topic for, for us, and um, usually if I talk about this, people's hackles are going to go up in one direction or the other, so I'm aware of that, but I think it's important <coughs> to talk about within with respect to, to what we're saying here, because this is one of the big dominant cultural topics out there. If we're not talking about it, society is. And so what is the biblical vision of sexuality? And, uh, and just as the early church didn't capitulate uh, along these lines or other lines of, of ethics, uh, we need to, to be clear about uh, what we believe as Christians. And uh, there's kind of uh, um, two sides of the coin here. Um, I think especially in, inherited from a sort of conservative background, um, there's almost a vilification of sex in general, uh, just across the board. I've even heard married couples say, I feel guilty having sex with my spouse. That's the flip side of the coin uh, because of all the um, things they heard growing up. And I would say that's, that, that shouldn't be, that that's the appropriate place for sex to happen. Uh, in a healthy uh, relationship, uh, monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. And so we should rejoice over that. Um, and, uh, but but, the, but the, the flip side of it entirely with respect to our society is sex outside of the marriage covenant, which is everything, which is just like what everybody seems to be talking about everywhere. I just made a list. I'm not just talking about homosexuality here. Uh, we can start with that, but... Um, uh, any sexual activity outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, including pornography, which is a major issue these days. I mean, just read what secular news outlets are starting to say about pornography and the effect it's having on 
the makeup of the brain chemistry of particularly not only young men, but also young women. Um, and along those lines, you could say prostitution, sexting. This is uh, more and more young adults and teenagers taking, you don't even need to buy commercial pornography anymore because uh, teenage girls are sending naked pictures of themselves to teenage boys and vice versa. And this, if you don't think this is happening, it's happening in a massive, massive way. Um, polygamy, adultery, um, everyday lust that objectifies people, and that's really the problem is, as Brandon said, just as the early church um, would go out and find those orphans on the street and take them in and raise them because they saw them as made in the image of God, in the same way we can think about that with respect to sex, that often what's at hand here with lust is objectification of other people to gratify my own needs versus seeing them as a fellow human being who's uh, just as deserving of, of love and being seen as not a means to my end, but an end in, of them, uh, in and of themselves. Uh, another thing that's happening is just hookup culture, which I saw when I was younger in high school and college, but it's being ramped up. I mean, statistics in terms of uh, sociological research, this, this is a major dilemma. Um, and the, the damage that it's doing to, to young uh, women in particular, but also to the young men who, who have no idea what healthy sex is like, so much so that when they finally do get married, they don't know what to do. <laughs> because their, their, their understanding of uh, sexuality is so um, skewed. Um, and uh, uh, so anyway, th th that's... Uh, so that's what's going on in society, and if we're the church and we're creating a counterculture, I think that we need to be clear about where we sort of stand with respect to all these things. And what is at hand at the, the core of a sort of Christian sexual ethic is uh, marriage between a man and woman uh, having sex in a heterosexual monogamous relationship, uh, not objectifying the spouse. Anything outside of that uh, is, does not fit within the paradigm. Culture looks at that and says, that is, you know, people are talking about scarcity and abundance all the time. Is another narrative you hear. They'll say that is a, a, a scarce way of looking at sexuality, that we need to be liberated and just sort of, you know, I mean, 1960s sort of uh, um, ideas about sexual liberation still dominate our, um, our contemporary uh, paradigms for sexuality. Uh, and, and we'll say that the, the Christian understanding is so reductive and conservative that um, it needs to be vilified. But I would say the opposite is true, that all, everything else that's happening in society is making people depressed, making them so depressed even to the point of suicide, that sex is no longer enjoyable. Um, it's, I mean, it's really, really gross. And it's, 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 effect, it's a heart issue that's really doing damage to people. Even though it's couched in terms of liberation and freedom, that's not true. People are actually enslaved um, to sexuality so much so that it's becoming part of identity politics too, as you were talking about identified by this, that, and the other thing. Um, now people are doing that, that, and they have been for a while, along sexual lines. And so I think, here, listen to this. I grew up in San Francisco. I converted to Christianity in San Francisco. When I became a Christian, I realized that this was the, the Christian sexual ethic. And when I encountered Christians who were like, oh, that's sort of old world thinking, I thought in my mind, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the Christianity that I converted to. It undermined the sort of 
biblical interpretation. It undermined anything to do with the, the Christian worldview and paradigm. Even when I was still living in San Francisco, I, I thought, this person, that's off. That's, I mean, because I knew the Christian narrative. I mean, even in a place like San Francisco, I heard that this was this Christian sexual ethic. And so when I became a Christian, I had to wrestle with that. And when I heard liberal Christians saying, uh, you know, that's just sort of old-timey thinking, uh, it really confused me. And I would say I'm not alone, that um, when other people in society know that about the church, we need to maintain it. Otherwise, the whole house of cards starts to crumble down. Because basically underlying it is a sort of understanding of biblical interpretation. Uh, and then you can then extrapolate that to the resurrection. Well, if, you know, I don't, if I don't read, say, Romans chapter 1 this way, then, you know, why should I read um, the end of all four Gospels and, and understand the resurrection as a literal reality? I can just sort of spiritualize it. And, I mean, I don't think those things are unrelated. Any final thoughts? Well, I was we just going to say, there, discussion? the opposite, pull, uh, pull out the opposite side to this, right? It might be that this recognition is a critique I don't know where we all come from in this room, um, but at least I come from a conservative sort of fundamentalist background. And it might be that the biblical sexual ethic might even critique my conservative um, American values, right? right? Because I might dehumanize someone who's not a Christian, who has a, you know, a, a normal um, non-Christian sexual ethic. Uh, I might dehumanize them in the way I treat them because... Um, I don't know. I, I'm dehumanizing them because I'm treating them like, you know, they're we garbage, can, basically, I mean, for having this different view. Yeah, one way to look at sort of um, the sexuality piece is, uh, from that perspective, if um, we, we vilify particular individuals because of their choices, uh, it, it actually is not going to be helpful to us. Instead, I think we need to take an approach of compassion. As I said, this is doing damage to people. Um, and, uh, you know, even if we don't struggle with those problems, we're a half step away from them. You know, it takes only this. Uh, and uh, so, you know, and, I, and I, we're not going to win any, uh, we're not going to win any people um, to, to where we stand if all we're doing is coming um, on the frontal assault. Instead, and vilifying. And vilifying. Yeah. Instead, I think we need to have a caring, compassionate, pastoral approach and yet still clear about what it is we believe about it. And so you can extrapolate all that I've said about sexuality because it's a hot button issue. There's so many others. There's so many others. And remember the first lesson we taught was confronting society's idols. I think this is one of them. And why do we create idols? We create idols because we're longing for things that actually at the end of the day only God can fulfill. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find a rest in thee. Well, people who are sort of... Um, putting themselves out there in uh, ways that are damaging sexually are often looking for love. Um, they're looking um, for joy and happiness and ecstasy. And I would say at the end of the day, we can only find true joy and happiness and ecstasy and love uh, with a relationship with God. Um, and uh, one of the, the um, one of the places, one of the uh, places on earth that we see, uh, one of the few places on earth that we see that kind of reflects that kind of love is a marriage where two people have vowed till death do us part to love each other uh, for better or for worse. Uh, and so, uh, so there you have it. 
but uh, we could say all this about so many other things. Money, I think money's a huge issue. Money, money, money. The Bible talks about money more than it does talk about sex. I mean, we'll just talk about that next time. I mean, uh, in America, this is a huge issue, and you've brought up consumerism as being one of our false idols, and so that's at work too. Anyway, open discussion about being a, a counterculture for the common good. Yeah. I have a, a, a thought. You touched on cultural relativism a little bit a couple of weeks ago. When you brought up the sexuality topic, it kind of made me think about maybe some of the success of uh, discipleship and evangelism in, in other countries and other cultures, like, say, Africa, for example. And then, you know, due to the, I guess, maybe more progressive nature of uh, American uh, Christianity, now, Ikusa, for example, is, you know, Allowing uh, you know homosexual uh, members of clergy and bishops and whatnot, and and then the you know the bishops over in Africa are saying, wait a minute, this isn't cool. This isn't what we signed up for. You know we're not down with this. So there, there's a definite tension there. How, how would you reconcile the, those kind of uh, those kind of topics? Uh, golly, I mean this is a huge can of worms. Because not only we're we talking about sexuality, but now uh, church politics and matched with that too. But I mean. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, because especially in their society, in African society, to be connected with a church body that believes something that, um, like, uh, that, that seems so diametrically opposed to the Christian narrative makes them look strange. Even if they, in a place like Africa, are not, um, you know, following the same practices, the fact that they're now, they're joined up to a church body internationally um, uh, makes them amongst fellow Christians, maybe in other denominations in, in their country, um, calls them into question, uh, basically. Um, so I can, I can understand that. And uh, look, sexuality in the United States is one thing, and, but Africa has its own dilemmas as well. You know, I mean, isn't it the president of South Africa who has multiple wives? Um, you know, I mean, so there's another one is, uh, you know, in other countries, they're going to have to, in other societies that are non-Western, to have a Christian sexual ethic means being counterculture in another way. Uh, for, so for a South African man, uh, in that tribal community, uh, it will mean um, not availing himself to multiple wives, uh, instead maintaining um, uh, a relationship, a healthy relationship with one. Um, and so it's a mess. I mean, it's, it's a mess internationally because we're not just talking about the church. We're talking about a variety of different cultures that are trying to make sense of life together with a biblical framework. And just as we have that Western culture that dominates our thinking, other societies are going to have other societal thinking that's not Christian that dominates their thinking as well. And it makes these topics really, really difficult. So how do I reconcile it? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I mean, gosh, it's a mess. I mean, really, it's stressful. I saw it here. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, it, I, I like what you said about, you know, critiquing our own kind of conservative, maybe cultural baggage as well, because I, I was thinking about the two sort of examples, uh, you're talking about identity politics, Yeah. and the two examples of uh, the woman at the well on the one hand, where you have a woman who's got a multiple al alternative, well, that, but uh, sort of an ethnic and kind of uh, doctrinal identity that's other, and right. it would, the society would dictate Jesus to treat her in a certain way because of that identity, and uh, the woman at the well, 
who'd got, you know, the scarlet letter oh, wow. on her, basically, you know, and uh, another one as well, the woman caught in adultery. Right. right. And so uh, most of these people have kind of this identity that yeah. dictates the way that society is supposed to treat them, and Jesus turns that on his head in both cases and says, you are not, I don't see you as You're not an bad. adulterer, I don't see you You're as... You're not labeled. Yeah, that he, you know, sort of connects with the humanity through that. And he, he subverts both of them. He does. And yeah, and um, rescues and them. And in a sort of equal way. You know what I mean? It's like the parable parable of the prodigal son, right? There's the younger brother and the elder brother. Right. Um, and in some sense, there's a greater critique against the elder brother because he's the religious one keeping the law. Exactly. And his religion or his goodness is actually more evil than the younger brother's rebellion in some sense. So. Even him. Yes. Yes. That's, yeah, that's, those are two great examples. Uh, I see how Jesus says, you know, you're looking for all the answers in these things, uh, but let me tell you where the answer is. Right. It's in me. Mind blown in 30 seconds. Right, and so he's not dealing with the identity <laughs> or the issue or their hang-up. Yeah. He's saying, he's okay, dealing, here's well, something else. That's right? the this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to for us to deal with in terms of what uh, is presenting itself. Yeah. Uh, and identity is what we see on the surface. But we see what Jesus is always doing, always, 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 is he's seeing beyond that mm -hmm. with x-ray vision to to take it apart and, and what's behind what's happening. You know, why why does she have, have has she had multiple husbands? It's not about that. It's about what's going on underneath of it. Again, in terms of trying to find love or security maybe in her society. Uh, and he's saying, he's saying, you know, you'll find your security in me. You know, rest, rest in me. Instead, I'm the living water. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think that's true with so many people. It's it's easy to it's too easy to say, well, that person um, looks a particular way, and I just want nothing to do with them, and I um, I reject uh, what they're standing for. It's too easy of an answer. Instead, I think we need to sort of peel the onion layers back, like Jesus did, and say, "What's going on here? Why? Why? Are, why is sexuality in this digital age, especially, so out of hand? Uh, what What are people seeking there? It might not actually be about um, sex. It might be about something else altogether. And and in a subversive way, saying." Um, just as, again, remember the first lesson I brought in, uh, Paul at the Areopagus saying, I, I noticed you're religious people, and I saw all these altars. Um, we've created altars in the digital age in certain ways. And to say, um, just as you've created uh, this framework, let me tell you where the, the true answer is for the thing um, that you're, um, where you're placing your energy. Any other uh, thoughts about anything? Yeah. How would the definition of the image of God be different in San Francisco than here. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, so I, I brought in statistics before from Barna, and they just came out with an article. Remember, I talked about this before. This isn't what we've handed out to you. But the top 20 most church cities, actually, I spoke, I misspoke because I was looking at the southeast region. Birmingham, Edison, Tuscaloosa, 56%, number five in the United States. Okay? But it's still real close. Number one is Chattanooga, 59%. So it's still real similar. 20 most unchurched cities. Number one, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, where I grew up, 60%. I mean, just as 56% are churched in, in our region, 60% unchurched. 
uh, where where I grew up, and that's real heavily skewed because of the suburbs. Um, you know, people in the city itself, it's a much lower number. Um, that's what the problem. Birmingham is mentioned too. Number five, top number five. most churched. No, most churched. Yeah. San Francisco, number one. New York City, not in the top five. It's like number seven or something like that. In terms of unchurched. Sorry. Chattanooga, number one, most churched. Um, but anyway, to say that, um, you know, this is the thing that Brandon uh, has, has mentioned is that in the postmodern world, the trouble is in terms of a, a, the, the, the narrative. Everybody's talking about a narrative these days. What's the, the society's story within which we operate? Um, San Francisco is much further along in our society in a postmodern direction, and we have lag time here. But if this is American society continues in its trajectory, it will look more like a place like San Francisco in terms of its understanding of the way the world works. And I would say in terms of image of God, well, we don't even, we don't, we, there is, there's not even, that, that's a story that I don't even abide by. There is no story. Make it up as you go. You know, you do you, right? Uh, uh, whatever works for you. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Just be yourself. Uh, God, God is you and is within you, as Elizabeth Gilbert said, and eat, pray, love, right? I mean, so image of God, what are you talking about? We're all God, you know? I mean, I actually had somebody in seminary say that to me, and I couldn't believe it. Um, I don't want that. <laughs> I'm a creature. But so the idea of image of, of God um, is even a, a, a part of a, a totally different story that would have to be communicated with the gospel. Not only is someone made in the image of God, but they can be uh, redeemed in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and, to see, and to see that uh, that that all people uh, potentially, even if they're if, uh, even if they're not yet Christian, uh, could be uh, is a, is another thing. Uh, and sometimes they're the least likely candidates. And I know some. Does Does anyone have any? I want to hear this. Does anyone have any pushback against what we've articulated? You're going to say, nah, I'm, I'm not buying it. I, um, the one thing that I have always thought, that, because my daughter is raising our, her family in Connecticut, and when someone said, um, you know, a church, a physical church up in Connecticut, she was told that by, the, by a priest, well, if you can find a Christian in that area, then that would be good, because the church, you know, forget the church. But, of course, they, they go to a church, and it's a physical church. But my point is, she is constantly being combated with, well, if it's Christian, then why are you not a loving person? Because Christian is loving all. So, therefore, that, yeah, the, you know, so you, the, and she yeah. said, you know, Jesus, yes, we constantly want to focus on our Savior as a loving, healing, you know, man. But he had his, this is wrong, too. And I sometimes right, think that's a, that's don't. Right, that's the straw man that people will say, well, Jesus is loving, so we got to love. Exactly. Not exactly. only love everybody, but love everything about them. Exactly. This is really so what people are saying. So now she is caught in a culture that is I'll let you confronting handle. I gotta go with her. Confronting her with just, well, you must not be a Christian yeah. because you don't love. 
and Jesus was pure love. Well, it's, I mean, what you're drawing out there is our society has a particular definition of love, and they just, when we say Christianity means love, right? We, if we say that, people might be thinking and importing that value into our, our message, right? So Robert Bella, one of the sociologists I mentioned, he talks about expressive individualism. Our, our view of society is that um, you do you, right? You express yourself, right? Everything is about me sort of, um, I don't know, uh, expressing my deepest inner self. And, and for me to love someone in that context means I support you in your individual quest to find yourself, right? So it's very individualistically focused. Um, that's not tied to a larger societal public framework. And, and so our relationships mean me supporting you to find yourself. And that's why people feel disconnected and depressed. They aren't connected. They're seeking their own navel-gazing, totally. being what they want to be. And they're not community. If you want a good book <laughs> as well to read, Habits of the Heart by Robert Vela. Habits of the Heart, phenomenal read. I, Two things, yeah. One, it just seems we'll get... to me that that, that that liberal view of you must absolutely love everything about someone, while maybe well-intentioned in some contexts, lacks the key nuance of, I believe that we can absolutely, or we should strive to absolutely love everyone. That doesn't mean love everything they do, in the sense that, for example, I absolutely love my kids. But do I love everything they do? No way. I mean, right. I'm mad a lot of the time, and I'll point it out, and we're going to try to correct this. I, I, don't, I, I don't see that dichotomy being expressed when we just say just love everything about everything. Right. It's interesting, like, the definition of love in the Bible, and if you think of God, First John saying God is love, you look at it, I mean, it's actually self-giving, whereas that's not our definition of Christian love, or that's not our definition of love in, in the U.S., right? It's not about self-giving, it's about and it's me affirming myself. And it's transformative. Right. Totally. I think God's love is creative and transformative, and if it's you know, if the love that we show is not that way, then what kind of love is it? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Just to respect time, of really quickly, if you... Well, we'll just going back to the two women. Um, to me, everything, so many of the discussions I've had have been on this surface of behavior and ethics. And in fact, we're new creatures in Christ. And in fact, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. If I love you, I'm not going to try to change your behavior. I'm going to try to have you come into this supernatural, eternal relationship with Christ, and from that you can work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes. Amen. I mean that that is so. I, I've been in these, but anyway, that's that's the short yeah. answer yes. for me. Yeah. I, I don't want to talk about your behavior. I want to talk right. about your relationship with Christ. I don't want to talk about how the Christians have failed you. I want to find out how does Christ fail you. Right. And that, they're not going to have an answer for that. Right, right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's good. It's a better so way of saying what I was trying to say. I'll, I'll just say, like... <laughs> but it's harder with toddlers. <laughs> 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 okay. Quick, quick. I'll just say, I think the root of it is, is this relativism. I mean, I think if we sit in this room and we say that there is absolute truth and, and there are things that are not absolute truth, that's one thing. If you're dealing with a culture that doesn't believe in that, then how can you not love everything about a person? Because whatever they choose is what's right and is what's good in a world where there is no absolute truth. Right. Everything has reference to me as an individual self. <coughs> Unmoored from the rest of society. Right. Yeah. And I'll just, to summarize and conclude, 
Remember, because Jesus has been raised, we're to love whole human persons, bodies, emotions, minds, and souls to tell them about Jesus. So we need to seek the common good holistically. I think that's the point. Um, all right, well, thanks for your attention, your time. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, I don't know if there are any left. It looks like there's one more or so. That's a really good summary of being an alternative society from Tim Keller. Thank you.